So what do you do after you design your life? I've read a great book recently that provides an answer, and that's Edit Your Life. It's only the second book that I've read that I followed up and listened to the Audible version after, because I wanted to get even a deeper understanding of the concepts and prompts that the author provided. Highly recommend it. Elizabeth Sharp McKetta is a storyteller and the author of 13 books across genres, including Edit Your Life. And she never told me about the ocean. She has published many poems and delivered the TEDx talk, Edit Your Life Like a Poem. She has literature degrees from Harvard, a BA, Georgetown, an MA, and the University of Texas at Austin, a PhD. She wrote a PhD dissertation on the intersections between memoir and myth, a concept that informs her teaching and writing and her entire way of looking at the world. She teaches for the Harvard Extension School Writing Program, Oxford University's Diploma in Creative Writing, and the Book Year Writer Circle. Elizabeth grew up in Austin, Texas, and lives with her family in Boise, Idaho. They travel widely. In her free time, she loves to make up stories with the young children, hike, read, make vegan soups, make new friends, and drink tea with old friends. Make sure you take a look at the show notes for links to learn more about Elizabeth Sharp McKetta and her work. And stick around for the takeaway segment where I provide three actionable ideas for you to compare with your own takeaways so that you can take action on what you learned in this conversation today. Elizabeth, thank you for making the time to join us today. I'm so happy to get to join you. Thank you so much for getting in touch and for bringing me onto this. It's just been such a pleasure to learn about retirement wisdom and your work. Well, I'm very excited about your book, having read it. And as I mentioned, I'm about to listen to the audiobook on my trip to uh, home to home to visit uh, family in Boston tomorrow. And it's one of those books that I want to hear it as well as having read it. And there's so many useful concepts. But I'd like to start with just how can editing be used to help people shape their ideal life? Thank you so much for your kind words on the book. And editing is something that I care a lot about because I've been... I'm 44 now, and I've worked as a writing teacher since I was about 22. And so I've sort of been initiated. And and before that, I had really formative, four very formative years in a writing, a memoir writing workshop with a group of retired Cambridge, Massachusetts memoirists who were ranging in age from 60 to our teacher was 95 when we started Hope Hale Davis. And Every week we met and looked at our work and hope would guide us on figuring out what it was trying to do and how we could try, how we could do it better. And she was a very fierce editor of the New Yorker trained, like lots of fussing about passive verbs and things like that. But I've sort of, my adulthood has always been marked with, with discussions about how to make writing better. And so as a teacher, and when I started taking private clients, I always felt that that was my highest that was sort of the highest, the highest order. That was the thing I needed to do, that I needed to not just figure out what was not working about the paper that was turned in or the novel that I had been hired to edit or the college essay or whatever it was, but I had to figure out what in it was alive and what it wanted to be, even if it was filled with all sorts of other stuff that was getting in the way of that. So it felt in a way like this sort of like literary x-ray technology that as I honed my editing skills, I got better and better at just looking at a piece and trying to help the writer see what I think it's trying to do. And of course, it's a conversation with the writer too, because it may be that what I'm seeing is 
is only part of it or is beyond it, in which case they have to reevaluate that they want it to be that as well. But but that idea of of not seeing writing as inherently that just that dichotomy doesn't isn't useful, but as as pointing towards something, some ideal version, some first choice version of itself that the writer might not even know about yet. They've written it partly by instinct, partly by all these different things. But but the editor's job is to figure out what is it trying to be and and how do we get it there? How close is it to that? And in some cases, it's very close already. And all we can do as editors is keep a very light touch and say, trust this and let me know what you need in the future. And other times it is very labor-intensive process that we embark on to to really excavate it and figure it out. So this idea of editing with with a book ends when the book is done. Whereas of course with a life, our lives are open books and it's never done until the life is over. So that principle of identifying in a life, what is this trying to be? And often with a life, I think it's an easy way to break it down is what gives me energy, what innately feels good. And then another side of that, that in both books and life that we can, that we'll probably circle back to is the question of what do I want to leave behind? That a life is filled with so many things from cooking soups to vacuuming, to remembering people's birthdays, to parenting, to trying to leave something behind, like your podcast or my books, that it feels like the the question of where's the energy on a day-to-day basis? How do we lean toward that and away from things that take it away? And what are the things that we really want to look back on and feel like we've we've given so that they can outlast us? Like those questions I think are really good editing questions. So so when I think about editing a life, I think about the same editing questions we'll ask about a book, which are ultimately, what is this now? What is this trying to be? What works in its quest to try to be that? And what is still needed to get it there? And I think those questions apply really nicely to lives. Tell us a story about how you and your family decided to move to the shed. And what did you learn? So the shed is a 275 square foot tiny house that we built irony to be my office, (laughs) which I now know is ridiculous that my whole family moved into my office. But we built it in the backyard of our of what we believed would be and what ended up being our starter home in Boise, Idaho, a little two-bedroom that had a really lovely big sort of hill of a yard behind it. And it was at that point when I was when my husband and I had been married for I guess a year and a half and we're feeling like it was time to start a family. And I was also feeling that that, that it was time for me to start taking writing more seriously. I, for a decade, been thinking, this is the thing, but finding all sorts of ways to, to work around it or avoid it or procrastinate it or not sort of take on its challenges yet. And I felt that that would be, I think in retrospect, that felt like that kind of grand gesture would be a place where the writing could live, where I would have to, to go there. I would have to, to make it part of the days in an unavoidable way. And I had planned to just get a tough shed, like a Home Depot little bathroom-sized tough shed. But my enterprising husband thought, well, we're living in Boise. Our, the grandparents will be in California and Texas. We should probably have a guest room. So maybe we should build it into something where people could stay. So what would have been the tough shed took on this new life as this really lovely, complete house with kitchen and bathroom. And then we designed it with an architect who's since become a good friend. And it took the summer to build while I was pregnant with my firstborn. And then afterwards was the place where I led writing workshops and where grandparents stayed. And it just had this lovely life in the back of our house. And we always just called it the shed because it was supposed to be a tough shed. And then we soon outgrew the little house in front 
with all of the complications that come in that age of having children, trying to figure out work, living far across the country away from family and oldest friends, chasing work and love, all the things that happen in, in that middle of life, 30s, 40s, that sort of period of life that's thick with all the producing things. We found that money was very tight. And so we ended up renting out the shed to a really nice college couple. And then soon outgrowing the house, soon the second born would come. We were sort of bursting at the seams in the little house and um, ended up moving into a bigger house. And then five years later, do, feeling the sort of, that the questions we'd been asking ourselves about our lives were yielding answers that suggested we had gotten really mired in the minutia of managing a house, working a lot of jobs, worrying about money, all the things. And that really the reason we had sort of, you know, our moonshot goal when we first married was let's do work that we love on our own terms. Let's be self-employed so that we can hang out with our babies all day. Um, you know, it was in a way, now that I, you know, talking with you about this, Joe, it feels in a way that a lot of the questions that we were putting forth to each other as young marrieds at 30 were questions that I think we will certainly revisit when we retire. And that ultimately were questions that I now see my parents and others asking themselves as retirees, like what needs to be the center of our world and how do we shape the days around it? And I'm not sure why we never, I mean, I think it never occurred to either of us to think about sort of nine to five jobs. I think we didn't have the temperaments for it. And also whenever I applied for them as a college professor, like I did not get them. So I sort of felt like I was probably gonna have to do it myself. And so, so in a way we were sort of shaping those, those sort of DIY careers that would leave room for life that would be centered around life at a pretty early age. And we, and in five years into this big house, the kind of house that is a wonderful house that you, that often we strive to live in when we are making our way in the world and showing to ourselves and others that we can do it. And we have done it. You know, the kind of house that we move from little bitty room in our parents' house to dorm room, to starter home, to the biggest, most bountiful thing we can afford where we host Thanksgiving and Christmas, and then eventually downsize to small home again, maybe room in a retirement home. You know, we were in the sort of big, thick belly of the whale and really felt that we had lost a lot of the things that we had felt were the most important because of all the demands of house. And it was, it was a very strange realization because we were living in a dream house of sorts that we had really loved and stewarded and worked to earn and but all the things, but ultimately realized that it was at that stage in life when the babies were so little and I was taking on any number of jobs, both that I loved and many that I didn't love in order to pay for the diaper down the toilet and the new roof and all the things that it felt like the things that gave us energy were my husband's real estate work, my writing and teaching work and our kids and our friends. And so it felt like a very radical decision. And since making it and since writing about, since writing Edit Your Life, I've now seen that in a lot of people's lives, often one big edit feels easier than a hundred little ones that just a single thing you don't have to think about. You just decide, well, we're going to see how small of a house we can comfortably live in. We're going to big, big edit. Because before that, for the years, we've been trying a thousand little edits. Like here's our house cleaning system. Here's the money system. Here's this, here's that. Here's who's on duty. Like too many things that were just sort of ultimately feeling overwhelming and, and like we're losing a lot of our joy. So we moved to the shed in the fall of 2017 when we had a three-year-old and a six-year-old. And the kids were, were very excited about the idea. They immediately said that they would, we said, you'll each get a toy bin this size, and then you have a separate shared one for art and for Legos. And they immediately started conspiring that they would make sure that they would bring only sharing toys so they could maximize their space. And that, that single decision of theirs really felt like it set the precedent for what the shed would, would be for us, that 
it would be a place where space was shared, where con- where conversations had to talk about everything. You know, we would have to be open about when we needed quiet, when we needed to resolve something. We would have to tidy as we go. We would have to. We couldn't be possessive about objects. We would have to be make room for each other's guests, but also set good boundaries when it was time for the guests to leave. We just had to learn all of these good skills with the kids watching. So the kids sort of had to learn these skills with us. And so as a consequence, those three years, I feel in a way taught them 90% of the things that I think they now would probably identify as useful ways of thinking and feeling. They're, well, even now, when we live in a slightly bigger, bigger house, both of them hauled their desks into the living room so that they can make art all day while chatting with us. You know, we sort of like to be together. But also, we're all very good at saying, like when I went in to talk to you, saying like, right now the door is closed and dad's on duty. And if it's bleeding or on fire, talk to dad. Sharing the work of housework, sort of all of the things that make it nice to be in a home and live with people felt like they started feeling sort of instinctive to us in the boundaries of the shed. That instead of, for example, having room for kids to trash the house and then leave the mess for adults, like we only had one table. So when you get off the glue stick on it, you have to put it away for dinner, like tiny, tiny things like that, that we could say in the big house all day, tidy as you go, but there were too many tables, you know, like it wasn't going to take place or share, or even the question of what kind of food we'd have in the house with a pantry this big and a fridge this big, you really only can have food that, that you want to be eating and that you want your children to be eating. So there's, there's, we took out of the house any arguments about food, like they could go out of the house and eat whatever they wanted because everything they're eating, the food was something that James and I had sanctioned as healthy enough. Um, things like that. It just felt like the house's boundaries allowed James and me to feel like we could be sort of the, the good cops and the parents who could sort of, it, it felt like good soil so that they could grow up well and so that that they would be okay. And it also felt like it really taught James and me a lot about spousal collaboration because in a house that small with a life that is that affordable, we didn't have any living expenses with two kids who sort of know how to operate in the house as allies. It was very easy for one parent to hold the house. So if James wanted to go skiing for a week, great. Or if I wanted to go for a riding retreat for a week or two, great. There was never any sort of counting of like, someone's paying for this. It always just felt like everyone could afford to be bountiful and generous because there was sort of enough for everybody, but that no one needed any excess. There's no room for it. Anyway, that was a really long answer for a very short and elegant question, but we learned so much. That's great. So one of the many intriguing ideas that I noticed in Edit Your Life is the concept of first choices. What role do first choices play in life editing? Yes, I love that question so much. And when I think of first choices, my mom has a term that I love called painless long shots. She always encouraged all of her children to, you know, rather than sort of thinking about all of the backup colleges, apply to the, the first choice. Like the worst they will say is no, or, you know, whatever it is, whether it's initiating a conversation with someone that we really want to be friends with, like, why not? The worst that can happen, as opposed to sort of scuttling around and thinking like, well, probably they don't want to be friends with me anyway. You know, probably they probably Harvard won't take me. Maybe true. And also, so I feel that I was given a lot of sort of encouragement early on to sort of try for the thing that feels the that feels the best. And and throughout my life, I found, and I've heard a lot of other people say different forms of this, which I find so interesting, that often our first choices, whatever they are, they're and, and again, this is the part that I think feels sort of Pollyanna-ish to say, but I feel that often the first choices are easier to obtain because they are natural to us. You know, my then, for example, I wanted to be a writer. I needed to be a writer, but because writers need all sorts of safety nets in order to keep themselves afloat, I wholeheartedly flung myself into trying to get into law school. And I worked at a law firm and I took the LSAT. 
as a second choice, but I didn't get in. And in retrospect, my essay was all about like literature that used law in interesting ways. Like no one would have read that and thought what a great lawyer she will be. But I found that the doors would open to me as a writer in ways that felt very serendipitous and very generous and sudden. And that I would eventually learn that I would, I would learn to trust in a way. I would learn that as that in a first choice career, you enter into a, what I call in writing, that the writers help writers chain. Like you will be given a hand by people who, who are kind and who want to help you. And you, your job is to say yes and to make good on that and then to offer the hand after you again and again and again and again and again. And I think that's a pleasure to enter into those chains with your first choice careers when it feels good to, when you always want to learn more, you always want to help people who want to, to succeed in it and you always want, and it feels like play. So, the, you know, then that's sort of a professional example, but I think with people as well, too, that I think it's when we make choices about how we spend our time, whether it's spending an afternoon with a friend who always energizes us versus one that we sort of dread the conversation with or making a dinner that actually sounds good rather than the one that we just think our children will eat. You know, I think that this idea of practicing first choices on a day-to-day basis is a wonderful energy giver and a habit. And it's been interesting talking about this idea of first choices with a lot of with a lot of mothers who have children, my children's age, nine and 12 or younger. One of them said, and I thought this was so poignant because I, I recognize this. I know that feeling that in all her years of cooking for, for young people, it never occurred to her to ask what her first dinner, dinner would be. And she said that week she would do so. But I think it was something lovely like cacio and pepe or some like lovely Italian pasta, but she made it and maybe nobody ate it, but she gave herself that first choice. And I think that it's, that it's not an invitation to be sort of tyrannical with our tastes and say, thou shalt only eat what I want, but just a way of putting in there, directly advocating for our needs and wants and encouraging those around us to do the same. So we're not guessing. And so that we're enlisting support for those things rather than putting them away and having them rise up as kind of taboos or disappointments or things that we're angry or jealous of because somebody else is enjoying them and we're not. So I think the simple act of just thinking, what what is what are the big first choices here? What are the things that really feel on a big and small level with the most, the, the best to me, what give me energy is one of the things that really feels important in life editing is to, is to ask that question. And, and likewise, in the book question, when we're editing, the question of what in this book just feels, what are the best parts? You know, if we were to distill this book just to its best parts, maybe it wouldn't be a very long book. You know, maybe right now there are not that many parts of that, but, uh, but let's figure out what they are because the author created them and can create them again if we can figure out what in here is most alive and working and sort of distill to that and take away the stuff that, that covers it. And another best part of your book to me was when you wrote about seasons. And as we're talking here today, summer is coming to a close, falls right around the corner. How can seasons be a catalyst for life editing? Oh, I love these questions. You have such beautiful questions. Seasons are, I love the fall season so much. And actually when I, I always think for those of us that have been a student and loved being a student and I have, am still a teacher, you know, I, I've spent my life in school or around school. I always think of September 1st as the real new year. So happy new year, Joe. It is, <laughs> it is the day. Um, happy new Same year. way. And it was funny. I was reading, um, one of my friends gave me an almanac last, last Christmas, I guess. And I opened this, the September yesterday and I noticed that several different religions I want to say, I'm going to botch this. I want to say it's Judaism, maybe Hinduism, maybe one others have either New Year's or births of their major figures in September. So it seems sort of like an intuitive choice for a new year and a new season in a way that I hadn't even thought about before I I saw the list of important dates. So yeah, seasons are so wonderful. And I think that seasons remind us that nothing is permanent. 
which is both heartbreaking and reassuring that on one end, the thing that we're worrying about today and this week probably won't be something that we remember in a year or six months. And I think that is a really, that's important to keep in mind that this too shall pass. And certainly that today, whatever the thing is, feels like the end or the beginning of the world, but most things are not. The end of our lives, we'll look back and think of maybe five days when the world shifted for us, but probably it won't be today. And probably this thing will be resolved in an okay way. And I think that the seasons also help us remember that everything is has cycles and everything is reversible, that a decision we make to move house or move job or step out of something, retire out of something or lean into something can always be reversed. We can always retire for a year and think, hmm, that was not for me. Or we can always take on new work for a year and think, wow, time to scale back. And I think that if we think of things in seasons, rather than I'm signing my name on the dotted line for forever, we just think, well, I'll try this for a season. I'll retire for a year. I'll, ret- I'll, I'll lean into this job for two years. I'll, I'll give it a go. And the exception, of course, is having children. Not reversible, but, but most, things, most things are. And most decisions that we make in our relationships can ultimately be cleaned up, apologized for, forgiven, that, that everything is reversible. So I think that is partly the wisdom of the seasons. And in terms of, of house, I just think it is, I keep coming back to this idea of how in America we are sent like the three little pigs far away from our parents when we're at that formative age in our 20s. Go make your way, seek your fortune, build a house of bricks, not straw, seek work, seek love. And then we enter this complicated era of you know 20s, 30s, 40s, often without the support that our ancestors, people all around the world have depended on and needed to navigate this sort of thick heart complicated era, the era that Anne Maura Lindbergh calls the, the oyster bed era, because we just keep sort of putting particles on and, you know, here's a new garage, here's an attic, here's a new car, oh, here's the, the new the remodeled sidewalk. It's this sort of teetery heavy thing that, of course, then when we retire, we we lighten ourselves from a lot of the time, you know, when fewer people depend on us and both in work and love. But I just think the way that we inhabit spaces is so interesting that we learn early in life that we really don't need, we come into the world with nothing. We need only food and our mother one and the same. And then we sort of get more and more birthdays come. We suddenly have lots of Legos, American dolls, you know, as we get into college, you know, we just accumulate more and more and more and need more and more space for it. And then as we retire out of the thickness of life, and as we sort of start facing our mortality, which we all must do with some form of grace, we realize, oh, okay, well, there go the mugs, there go the books, the books are a hard one, there go the Legos, there go the collection of starfish, there go the things. And we end just as we began, which is with with nothing, with love and memories. So with the idea of seasons, I think it helps us remember our mortality. And I hope in, depending on the seasons, that's easier or harder, but in a positive way, it reminds us that the question we should be asking is what will we carry forward from this season and what will we leave behind? And as we, you know, go through the seasons of life, I think that, that a well-edited life often has at its, not, not everyday obsessively asked, but that if we sort of keep in mind, what do I need this life to leave behind? Who can this be of benefit for? For me, that is very much, I want to leave books that people want to read. I want to leave children who are adding to the green of the world. And I want to leave thousands of students who are inspired and awesome and carrying on the writer's help writer's chain. Like if I've done those three things, great. Everything else can go and should go and will go. And so I think that the sadness that comes with any sort of loss can be mitigated by the thought of what that season will sort of what seeds will come from that season as we as we move on to the next one? And to that point of looking forwards, 
it's challenging to move out of our comfort zones, but that's where the growth lies. Why is it helpful, as you write about, do one brave thing? I love that question. The brave thing. The brave thing was something my husband always insisted on to our children when they were very little. Do one brave thing every day. And it, I think, normalized discomfort, not in a way that I think, I think in a quite healthy way that often the discomforts for them as little people were try broccoli or go say hello to that friend or try to put on your own seatbelt instead of waiting for a grown up. These tiny things that worked toward helping them make their own way in the world. And I think that in terms of brave things when we're young, I think that's, and, and really in any age. So a few things that I think are, are interesting about the, the brave thing. And I think the main one is just that as humans, we are geared toward growth and change and, and seasons. And that we don't, however much we might want it to, we don't live in a world that stays still. And we don't live in a body that stays still. And when we fight change, we often make a whole lot of trouble for ourselves. And that's not useful. And I think that when we do a brave thing, we embrace the big or small discomfort that comes with stepping out of our comfort zone. For me, a brave thing, one of the bravest things I did recently where I just felt, oh, you know, exhausted, but so proud of myself was um, I took a sailing lesson. I got like a very beginner sailing. It was so brave. I was so cold. I fell out of the boat like 50 times. But it was, you know, my, I have a, my husband is an ocean guy and my son is a water guy through and through. And my daughter takes sailing lessons. And it just felt like I was going to be the weak link in the family if I didn't at least learn how to be competent enough on a boat. And it just felt like a way that I could grow to meet them and I could grow to make family adventure something that we can all do using that shared interest, even if it's not necessarily the interest that, even if it's not necessarily my first choice interest, hanging out with my family and doing interesting things is absolutely first choice life. So I think that that sort of going out of one comfort zone reminds us we can go out of another. And as I mean, anyone who has any sort of, I know that morning routines are something that a lot of a lot of people talk about and think about and that I've loved having different versions of. And I think often a good morning routine puts the brave thing front and center in the clean morning mind so that before we even are conscious, before we've even had a conversation or breakfast, we've done our exercises or we've written a page in our book or we've done the thing that feels brave, that feels like we could go days and lives without doing it, but but we want to do it. You know, it feels good to do. Our higher self wants to do that. So I think the brave thing is just a reminder that we can do other brave things and that um, we're never stuck and that we can always take a step, however big or small, towards something that feels important and like a first choice life or, or thing to do. So the brave thing is just a good habit. I had the pleasure of interviewing a 102-year-old doctor, Dr. Gladys McGarry, earlier this year. And that led me to notice in your book, you also have written about centenarians. What have you learned from centenarians? I love that you ask about centenarians. Here's to your 102-year-old interviewee. It is amazing to have conversations with people who have lived that many years. It is really inspiring. My writing teacher, I know I mentioned who I started, Hope Hale Davis, who I started teaching, learning with when she was 95 and I was 19, lived to be just a month short of 101. And later on, my grandfather would be 103. And I've read a lot of books about centenarians. And what got me, I think, really on a quest to learn from them and about them was when I was asked to write my grandfather's biography. So he, he died in 2019, but his name is John J. McKetta Jr. And he was a coal miner who went to the one college that let him in and ended up becoming a 
chemical engineering professor, sort of a celebrity chemical engineering professor who was just wonderful, like warm, much loved mentor to thousands of students. When I interviewed students, many of them described him as the, the godfather of modern chemical engineering. He was just such, he thought of them all as his, his sort of extended network of children. He did everything he could to help them and was so excited to, he advised a bunch of presidents. He just had this, you couldn't have ever imagined a bigger life. And he had incredible energy and just was such an interesting person. And it had all these short pieces and interviews and features and documentaries, all these, all these things had been done about him, but there was no conclusive book. And so as his granddaughter, who had a background in my PhD, was analytical writing. And so I knew how to write with sources. And so I think that was that. And just the fact that I was a writer of other kinds of books were the main reasons why I was asked. And it was, it was such an interesting challenge because I am not a scientist. I'm a poet. And I was pregnant with my second born. So it was sort of a weird time to be like diving into this scientific biography when I, if I, you know, I kept thinking, if I'm doing this right, I would go get a PhD in engineering or chemistry or at least one of these topics. But what I ended up doing was looking at his life in terms of the fairy tale at the center of it, that it was a happily ever after fairy tale. And you could sort of see in it a Jack and the Beanstalk story, that there was a boy who had a tremendous threat in his childhood of the coal mines where his uncle and his brother and his best friend and his best friend's dad all died within a year where he was sort of slated to spend his life and decided in his own words, I was too yellow to do it. But in anyone outside looking in's words, he, he knew that there was something better for him above ground. So he sort of climbed and he kept, but there were you know, giants along the way. Anyway, I'll get off the fairy tale metaphor, but, um, but I felt that if I could just write the story of, if I could just write the Jack and the Beanstalk story, filling in the details of his life, that then I could figure out the rest with a good research assistant, which I did. And as part of the research, both about his life and about chemical engineering and about the fact that at the time when I was publishing, was writing it, he was 99, I read probably a dozen books about centenarians. And I became so obsessed for so many reasons. But, but my question was, is my grandfather a textbook centenarian or is this sort of extraordinary? And the answer is he's a total textbook centenarian, probably like Gladys who you interviewed, that there's sort of these qualities that science, that you know, mostly American scientists have or at least in the books I read, have gone around the world and looked at these blue zones where people tend to live well over 100, which is much more sort of likely, they have a higher percentage of, of reaching that age in a healthy way than you know, the rest of us do. So um, it's, you know, Loma Linda, California, and Nicoya Peninsula, Costa Rica, and I think Sardinia, Ikaria in Greece, um, where's the other one, Okinawa in Japan. And in pretty much each one, the scientists figured out the same things. And they're so simple. They're so simple. We know them already. But they're basically value friends, have a good network of people that, that you're excited to wake up and see and continue yesterday's conversation with and have an ikigai. I saw that was one of the books you recommended on your website, you know, have some, have a life's purpose that feels like it calls you from bed each day that you're ready to wake to. And then some of the physical ones, they, many of them are building fences, performing heart surgeries, walking 20 miles along the coast to gather and forage greens. I mean, they just move their bodies so much all day long much more than, than most people do today. And then finally, many of them, they eat for the most part. You know, they drink a lot of water and they eat a whole foods, mostly plant-based diet. When someone has a good catch of fish, you eat the fish, but otherwise you mostly eat plants from the garden. So it's so simple. But I've sort of lined these things up. To my grandfather, it felt like, well, yes, he does all of these. And he does his own. He would mow his own lawn. He would fix his own roof. The sort of DIY spirit. Talk about a life of brave things. And this sort of and the kind of attentiveness to the village felt like something that happened again and again, that the ones who were flourishing at 103 felt a real sense of duty to 
their village, their grandchildren, their church, their community, fill in the blank, someone needed them to wake up and be healthy. And my grandfather very much felt that way too. So I think that really got me thinking as a life editor, both about the question of what do we add to the green? What, and that's the word I use in the book, is how do we add to the green? How do we leave something that is growing? And I think that in these, a good centenarian question is to ask that every day. What do I want to give today? Because so many people, I think it's very easy in our culture to to sort of retire and feel irrelevant and feel like my kids don't need me. My work doesn't need me. What am I doing here? And I think if we can reframe that in terms of what green, what am I leaving for the world? What every day am I? Is it a conversation? Is it a volunteer work? Is it some way that I'm adding joy to my neighborhood, to this conversation, whatever it happens to be, to my projects? I think that's a good question to ask. And also, it's it just such an interesting, one of the other things that, that the books talked about, and this is the last thing I'll say about it, I could talk about centenarians for like 17 hours, but so much of, it seems that psychologically, just believing that that kind of age is possible has a lot for us as well, that many, I've spoken to many people my own age who just say like, well, I'm just going to, I'm probably going to die at 70, which fair enough, but also reframing that. And you sort of have to reframe that when you read these books and when you have people in your life who live that long and you think, well, say I had good luck and made the choices I can control and were to live that long, how will I spend that? How will I spend that 30 years of extra time? And it really reframes the idea of, of making meaning with life as opposed to just sort of waiting for that to be, to be given. It's wonderful. It's so fun to study them. Now, I also discovered that you have another new book just out, ARC. I have to be careful that my Boston accent doesn't return when I pronounce that title. But tell us about your new book, ARC. ARC is my first middle grade book. It's my 13th book, and it was my pandemic project. The, I was trained to study fairy tales, so always there's a fairy tale at the center of every book. And ARC is... Okay, so always there's a fairy tale in every book. And one of the things that I have never done as a writer that I often tell my students from a publishing perspective is a really good idea to do is I've never stayed in one lane. I've always written what feels exciting and interesting and and comes my way or feels like it must be written. And so that has led to a very checkered and not necessarily a publishing history that I would say is the easiest way, but, um, but it's led to books of poetry and collaborations with artists and scientific biography and literary fiction and essays, all these things. And so, so it felt like at that point, in the pandemic, I had two young readers and middle grade was what we were reading a lot of. We were reading a lot of Where the Red Fern Grows and Wonder and these beautiful books written for people just at that sort of cusp of the eight to 12 that would shape their tastes as a thinker and reader and person who thought about life with a certain, just with a certain lens. So it felt like a really kind of important time for a reader. And we were living in the shed. All the, We were just kind of felt like we had just been snowed in. School stopped, work stopped, everything stopped. And so I started thinking at that time, we had a Labrador who we shared with another family because we traveled so much that she would be with us during the school year and with the other family during the, the during times when we were gone. And that had worked out really nicely. And during the early, early March, 2020, our dog Posey was with her other family. And I just started thinking, what is this like for my kids that suddenly like to have the dog come over is complicated because we didn't know if dogs carried COVID or not. And to be suddenly you have your only friend to be your brother and to have the world go away. And so I started imagining this from their perspective and immediately a narrator popped out who had a lot of qualities of my daughter, but was ultimately her own character named Arden and who felt a lot of responsibility to her family when the pandemic shut things down and 
and her parents both lost their jobs. And they, and she noticed that there were a lot of dogs in the neighborhood who had been abandoned because people moved or got sick. And so Arden, who feels that in order to write her world, she needs to, there needs to be a dog in the house, suddenly turns her tiny house based on our tiny shed into an ark. And she gathers all the neighborhood dogs. And it becomes this sort of wonderful coming of age story about a girl who remedies her own problem of feeling houses too small and not enough dogs to solving her, her communities, to adding to, to the greed of her community by rescuing the dogs. So it's a very sweet story. And it was really fun to, it was so much fun to write. And then always in the last, before any of my books are done, I always get the the galley, the final version of it, and read it aloud to whoever in my family is willing to listen so that they can catch all of the dumb errors. Like in this case, that in ARC, that March had, I think, 58 days and April only had eight days. So I had to, you know, rearrange as you do. But it was such a pleasure to write. And it was just the first time that I really tried to write something for my kids and their friends. And so it only came out on Tuesday. So it's a very new book, but I'm very, very proud of it. Do you have time for one last question? Of course, I have all the time in the world. So you write about and you mention that there are big life edits, grand sweeping gestures, but they're also tiny ones. But I took away that it's not this life editing thing. It's not a one-time event. And I'm curious, what advice would you have for people listening? How could I'm living a life with an editor's eye? I love that. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. How can we live a life with an editor's eye? I think if I were to distill it to a single question, it would be asking of any situation, big or small, what in its ideal version does this want to be? And that's it. What does this want to be? And that can open up so many doors and it can lead to gigantic edits like what this wants to be is full of adventure, which changes how we might live or spend. Or it could be something tiny like, like one in our own house. My husband is much tidier than, than I am. And he was very frustrated that everyone was always, you know, stomping in with shoes after he cleaned the floor. And so one of his questions is, what is this ideally? This is ideally a, a clean house that I don't have to sweep six times a day. So he just made the single edit of saying, this is a no-shoe house. And it was so simple. It was so tiny. Just tell people, here's he bought a shoe rack. Um, and it saved him hours every week. And it just like, that's been the case for 10 years. So, I mean, and it can be a tiny thing if something is just driving a person crazy, or it could be a gigantic thing, but it's really just, what is this trying to be? And anytime we feel something is off or frustrating us or making us a sort of grumpier, lesser, not as kind version of ourselves to ask, not to be hard on ourselves and, and about it, but just to ask, what am I frustrated about here? There's something that I would like this situation to be, but it's not. And often by answering that, it can be a very simple answer or a very direct conversation. So I think that would be that would be it. What is this trying to be in its ideal version? And how do we close the distance between what it is and what that version is? And it really epitomizes the power of just having those questions handy. And the other one that, that jumped out to me in your book was the one that you had a label on your phone. Yeah. And I think that's another go-to question. Oh, I love that. Yes. Yeah, so I have a label on my phone. Actually, the recent one fell off, so I need to get a new one that just says, is it necessary? And it is so useful for so many things, whether is it necessary to do that extra email check when I'm doing a jigsaw puzzle with my kids? Probably not, um, unless I'm really waiting for an important email, but I'm usually not. Is it necessary? My credit cards are in my phone. Is it necessary to buy this thing? Probably not. Um, but also other things that are necessary. But I just love seeing that question every day. Totally simple edit, like no shoes. Just a simple, simple, very small edit that I just, that, that requires thought at different junctures of the day. It's a great one that's often been pointed in my direction 
by my wife, but I've decided now I'll adopt it for myself proactively because that proactive editing that you write about is, is, is really the, the most valuable part. But Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking the time with us. It is really a tremendous book, very practical, very useful, very thought-provoking, and I appreciate you talking with us about it. So thank you so much. I've loved our hour and could have many more hours and so appreciate your, your work and your questions and just your time. Thank you. Time for the takeaway segment. This is where we compare notes on what jumped out to you in this conversation and what are some actionable ideas that you can take forward. Here are three ideas that I noted. Number one, what are your first choices? Whether you're in retirement or planning for retirement, I think this is a great concept. What are those things that you've always wanted? What are those things you always wanted to do? You've now got the time to explore them, to pursue them. But rather than settle, why not take a look at what would be your first choice? And a related concept that she talked about and wrote about, I think is also useful and intriguing. What's a painless long shot you might want to take or worth considering? Number two, use the seasons as catalysts. Perfect timing on this one as we're about to head into fall. And while I really loved Elizabeth's points about looking at our life in seasons, she also writes about talked about using the seasons as a time to step back and make the adjustments. Some of them come naturally with the change in any season, but you can use it as a chance to step back, examine your life, edit your life, and make the changes you want to make to move forward. Number three, is it necessary? This is a question that I find myself being faced with for my wife often. Uh, she also, I think, lives a lot of the principles that Elizabeth spoke about and wrote about. But I find myself now really periodically asking myself that question, is it necessary? And I have a modified version that's popping into my head from time to time. Is it really necessary? I find that keeps me honest, having that follow-up. Thanks for listening to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. My mission is to help you retire smarter by taking a look at the many dimensions of retirement life beyond financial planning. You can see all of our episodes at a glance at our website, retirementwisdom.com. There are six seasons, over 200 episodes that you can browse, great guests, and a range of topics that will help you be better prepared. Thanks for listening. 